It is good for us to be here, to be here to worship in song and to study from God's Word and to pray together, and this being the Lord's Day, to commune and to be in fellowship with each other and with our God. I invite you to open your Bibles to a very familiar passage in Romans chapter 1, where we'll read in just a moment. We're thankful for those who are present, for those who are visiting, as we always say, You are our honored guest, and we appreciate the fact that you care about spiritual things. There are some things that are very serious in the Bible. In fact, all of the Bible, one could argue, is serious. And when it comes to being called by God and being serious Christians, that's a serious thing to consider. So I'd like to talk tonight about what it means to be called by God, and we'll start out by talking about what that means necessarily does not mean, but I want us to then explore the fact that the world is different and that God always provides. And so there's two or three kind of major themes throughout our study together tonight. When we think about the calling of God, we need to acknowledge that understanding that concept or that phrase is an important thing for us as Christians to do. In fact, I I would venture that most of us, if someone were to say, are you called by God in the religious world or in the non-religious world for that matter, there may be a little bit of hesitation before we answer that question, knowing what they may mean by that. Because depending on who's asking the question and the context of the question, there may be a little bit of trepidation in answering, yes, I am called by God. But yet we are called by God, as we read in 2 Peter, chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, and as we'll turn back in just a moment. But it's especially important in light of a broad misunderstanding in the religious world today. And we need to make sure that we get it right and make sure that we understand the seriousness of making sure that we are right on this particular idea. Some, as you are likely aware, and you may or may not be aware, but most of you are aware of the fact that there would be this teaching that a person is independently called by God or sanctioned by the Holy Spirit in some action or in some special way. I remember years ago talking to a lady who didn't say anything about the Bible, said nothing about Scripture, but said that she felt that God came into her life one day while sitting on her bed. She felt like an angel was present and the Holy Spirit was there and sanctioning her and telling her that everything was okay. And the problem with that is, as we understand, and hopefully tonight if you are here and you think that that is a way that you are called by God, we can maybe clear up some confusion and miscommunication that's come from the religious world, is that that makes you different than somebody else when we know that Jude tells us that the gospel was delivered once for all. For example, I receive a number of questions from people over the years from the religious world in general or for those who are not members of the Lord's church and they'll suggest that I've been called to preach by God. And it is true that there is a calling to preach or to teach or to act in a particular way, but you understand what they mean by this. When did you receive your calling? 
Well, when the phone rang and someone invited me to preach, that's when I received my calling. Sometimes I want to say. But I wouldn't say that because that's not the, the way that you understand the calling. You see, some people believe that God miraculously works and he says, okay, for this particular person, you are going to preach. This particular person is going to teach. And it is true that God gives us those different talents and those different abilities as outlined, for example, in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, where it says that God gave some to be apostles, some teachers, some pastors, some evangelists. But a person chooses to say, you know what, I want to preach the gospel, and that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Just as much as a person might say, I would like to teach Bible classes, but I don't want to preach publicly. And we get to choose what different things we are going to do in the kingdom. It is true that this false notion or this false idea seems to stem from Calvinism, which is not the scope of our study together tonight, or of various forms of charismatic churches, which is another study in and of itself. But what we see in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where our brother Brian took us to in our Bible class this morning, and I want to reread those two verses, 16 and 17, is that this is not the case. And as my preacher friend likes to say, let's look at these verses with those so-called fresh eyes, as if you've never read these verses before, where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul says. For it is the power of God to salvation, not for special people who are chosen in some special way, but for everyone who believes. That would include you and that would include me. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. You know, when I read those passages... There's a number of other passages that come to mind, as I'm sure they do for you. I'm reminded of what happened very late in the gospel according to John. In fact, very late in John chapter 20 or 21, where uh, Jesus is speaking to Thomas and he's speaking to the other disciples. And he says, blessed are those who having not seen me yet believe or still believe. That would include you or me as well. With all that said, this doesn't mean that we are not called by God, because we are called by God, but not in that special, miraculous, Holy Spirit way that the world seems to suggest. We are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to go a little bit further, now that we've established, hopefully, some of the miscommunication that is out there in the religious world, to argue that we're not called by God is not only untrue, it's folly to think that we can be his children and at the same time not be called. So depending on the way a person asks the question is a way in which we answer the question. The context of the question, who it's coming from. And what I would suggest is when someone says, have you been called by God? I would just ask them the question, well, what does that mean to you? And that'll clear up the confusion as to whether or not they're approaching it from a truth-based point of view or from a outside-of-the-box, outside-of-the-Bible thinking point of view as well. In understanding what it means leads us to consider how serious Christianity is. And Christianity is a serious thing. You know, I, I don't get serious about too many things. In fact, there's a lot of things that I probably should be more serious about, according to my wife. 
But when it comes to Christianity, this is a serious thing. And we've got to make sure that we get it right for our own benefit, but also as we pray frequently for the benefit of those that we're trying to teach and trying to challenge others to come to the cause of Christ as well. I want to note, if you would, three or four aspects of what it means to be called by God or some themes about what it means to be called by God. And I want us to start with this, and that is to acknowledge that the world is different. You know, we know from passages like Romans chapter 12 that we are not to be like the world, but we are to be transformed from the world. And as good Bible students, you are familiar with that particular text. But I would also make the argument that as you look left and right, as you look first and second, that there are two perspectives regarding this particular fact. One of those is the way we see the world. So here's the world, and here we are, and we get to look at the world, and we get to look at it through different kinds of lenses. We look at it naturally as a man or as a woman, but then once we become Christians, it's as if we've gone to the optometrist and God, the beloved physician, is in this case an eye doctor who says, I want you to see the world differently. Some have suggested that we need to see sin seriously like the Savior. Put all those S's together and you get a, a very a righteous concept that is we see sin the way that God sees sin. And so being called by God means that we must not value worldly things or worldly wisdom above him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 26 beginning, this may be a passage that is familiar to you. We briefly made reference to it in a study just a week or two ago. But I want to read just those two verses where he says, You see your calling. So there's the phrase that we're kind of honing in on. You see your calling, chapter 1, verse 26. Brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So there are three key words that I notice in those two verses that you might want to underline or at least kind of highlight in your mind. And that is the idea of calling, called, and chosen. We are called by God. We are to see that our calling is not according to the wisdom of the world, but according to the wisdom of God. And, you know, as we are in the introductory stages of our study of the harmony of the Gospels, one of the things that we notice, as we did this morning, is that Jesus is all about calling the common man and using the common man to, in the words of the book of Acts, turn the world upside down. Furthermore, serious Christianity requires a reevaluation of things. So when we become Christians, we seriously reevaluate our personal lives. We reevaluate the relationships that we have with others. And it comes from an understanding of God's word. And the second aspect of that is the way the world sees us. Jesus knew and experienced that the world would treat him differently, would see him differently. And in John chapter 7 and verse 45 beginning, I want to just very quickly read through those seven or eight verses. And it reminds me in many ways of what our brother Phil had to say to this morning as he helped us get ready and continue to get ready for the Lord's Supper. 
by reminding us that Jesus was spat upon, he was crucified, he was nailed, he was pierced. He had all these horrible things that happened to him. It says, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officer says, no man has ever spoken like this man. Pharisees answered and asked, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And then Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And he answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. I say all that to simply conclude this particular sub-point in our study, in that this should be something we long for and we are thankful for. Back up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, and verse 25. And there it says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Same idea, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 and 27 on the left side of the screen. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. In my Bible, where there are subheadings, it says Jesus provides real or true rest. And that certainly seems to be fitting to describe what's happening here in this particular text. So we need to understand first and foremost that the world is different. And the way that we interact with the world is different as well. Let me suggest additionally that routine maintenance is needed. Uh, there, there may, uh, depending on your personality, if you are an anxious person or you are a worrier, uh, there may be no worse feeling than when you turn on the car and all those lights come on and then all the lights go off. And don't you just hate it when that one little check engine light stays on there? And you either have to call someone who has a reader or, or go somewhere and have them read it. Or if you're like me, you just leave it on and, and just hope for the best. My light's been on for weeks. And it just keeps on running. So I'm just going to keep on running until one day you're going to see me on the road pulled over to the side and you'll say, well, he should have gone and had his check engine light check. Anybody has one of those readers, I'll be glad to talk to you after services. <laughs> but routine maintenance is needed. That's true with an automobile. Someone once said, be careful because once you turn into your 50s and 60s and 70s, that check engine light's going to come on for you as well. It's time for you to go to the doctor finally. Well, the fact is, is Christian life involves a continual effort to improve and not the achievement obtained. What do I mean by that? And we don't ever get to the place where we are 100% satisfied with ourselves. This is one of the things that I've always admired about our senior citizens in the kingdom. I've admired so many individuals who are in their 80s and 90s. And I know of a Christian in Southern California who just had her 103rd birthday. And she's at every service. Her Bible's open, she's paying attention, she's listening, she's trying to figure out what's right, because even after having been a Christian for, in her case, maybe 55, 65, 75 years, she's still learning. She's still working on the maintenance and making sure that she is doing what is right. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. We won't reread those seven or eight verses. The first three verses are very very familiar to us. Sometimes we call them the, the Christian virtues, the idea of what we add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and those other 
things in that list. But I want to really just speak about verse 10. I believe it's verse 10 that we want to just kind of put a, a highlighter on for just a moment. There in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he says, you add all these things together in order to have a complete view. And then he says, my brethren, be even more diligent or work even harder or make even surer your call and election to be for sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Note, if you would, the lessons of this particular text. If I were going to do a, a sermon just on these six or seven verses, some things that I'd point out. One of those is that addition or growth is a must. I referenced this about three weeks ago when I said that Satan is all about math as much as God is about math. Remember that Satan is about subtraction and division, but God is about addition and multiplication. God wants us to be adding to ourselves and multiplying who we are. And the fact is, is that's something that we need to be a, a part of. You know, the other thing that our brother Derek, and he did a good job of reading for us here, as he pointed out, Peter does, is that failure to grow is short-sighted. A short-sighted Christian, one who is blinded, one who only sees what's right in front of him or her, is one who says, it's not important for me to grow. I'm happy with my limited level of knowledge. And I've known of Christians through the years who know just a little bit, and they know enough to get by, and then they're satisfied with that level of learning. We are never satisfied with what we know. We always want to grow and to learn more, which is why, thirdly, our diligence matters. And it's a process that is tied to our calling. And so we need to work to make sure that happens. You know, while we're in the books of First and Second Peter, it would be uh, amiss if we didn't highlight a third thing, and that is suffering is okay. That if we are going to be called by God, we have to acknowledge that there are going to be times when we suffer. First Peter chapter 4 talks about this on numerous occasions where it says if you're going to suffer, make sure that you suffer as a Christian. When we are Christians, when we sign up, so to speak, to become saints, when we are added to the church after our baptism for the remission of our sins. We are voluntarily attempting to be like Christ in every way, including John chapter 7, Matthew chapter 11, which we read a few moments ago. And this includes suffering unfairly for a cause that is greater than itself. And we just recently talked about this from this pulpit. Someone pointed out that you may very well lose your job because you are a Christian. Or, perhaps more likely, you may not get the job promotion that you wanted because of your refusal to participate in certain company events or to engage in certain kinds of company conversations. But we need to look at what Peter has to say. And so turn back a page or so in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 21, he says, For to this you were... Know what the next word is? Just take a wild guess, even if you don't open it. Call. He says, you were called to this. This is your purpose. And he says here, because Jesus Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And if you would, consider, if you would, Peter's theme in the letter, which is a number of things. But one of the, the threads that winds through 1 Peter is this idea of suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ. And Jesus 
not only was willing to live out this message, but he taught this principle to his earliest followers. Because after all, he was saying, if you want to follow me, it is a serious thing to do. In Matthew chapter 16, I want to just look at two passages here very quickly before we move to our final observation. But in Matthew chapter 16, in a text that uh, we are generally familiar with, it says in verse 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, I think we underestimate the value of the soul. Maybe not we as Christians, but just as a society, I know we underestimate the value of souls. Because we put so much emphasis on our physical health. We put so much emphasis on our financial health. We put so much emphasis on our family's happiness and our kids' education. The soul matters more than anything else. That's what really matters. And I've said that if, as parents, as grandparents, and if our children and your grandchildren and people that you care about, they, they're just not that smart academically, but they are solid Christians, you've got a win-win there. Now, we hope that you'll have good education and good academics and all that kind of great stuff. But you understand the point that I'm making is that nothing matters more than your soul, your child's soul, your grandchild's soul. Nothing matters more than that. And then it reminds me of a passage in 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 6. And there John says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. It's a simple verse. 1 John 2, verse 6, that we ought to walk in the way that he walked. Well, we learned this morning that walking with God is essential. We were reminded of that fact in David's good sermon, and we are reminded here of the importance of walking with Jesus the Christ. Well, that brings it to a final observation, and that is when it comes to serious Christianity being called by God, it reminds me of the fact that God always provides. This is, in many ways, the Jehovah-Jireh principle as illustrated in Genesis chapter 22. You remember there when uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, and his son Isaac said, what about the sacrifice? I see the wood, I see the fire, I see everything that's necessary, but what about the animal? And of course, Abraham famously says, the Lord Jehovah God will provide. Because he always does. And there's so much to be said about that principle and so much to be said about that. But I want to actually go and read three or four verses before we close in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 in verse 28. And I want to read through verse 31. Someone once said, and I'm sure it's been said by more than one person, and everyone has their opinion. Uh, if I were to give you a post-it note and say, what is the most encouraging chapter in the Bible? And, and everyone had to give his or her opinion, uh, it probably would drive you crazy because you say, well, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a toss-up between about 35 different passages, 35 different chapters. But someone once said that Romans 8 is, quote, the most uplifting chapter in the New Testament. Even if it's not the most for you, it is a very uplifting chapter. It's very positive. It's very optimistic. It's very upbeat. Well, read in verse 28 where it says, we know that all things work together for good, 
to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. There it is a second time in the text. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say then? Verse 31, perhaps the most quoted verse in all of Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? These four verses testify that God always provides. Now, as was recently in a Bible study that I was engaged in, that does not mean that God is always going to make life perfect for you. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have some challenges. Go back to the previous major point that we made in that suffering is a part of being a faithful child of God and that sometimes you may lose your job, you may lose income, you may lose relationships with those that you care about. But it is important for us to remember that this doing God's will and doing what he has asked us to do is about doing it and not what we want to do. I want to close with this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 where Paul is writing to the relatively young man, the evangelist Timothy. And he says, go back to verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. There it is again, this idea, don't be ashamed. Nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. And he didn't call us because of something good that we have done, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. It reminds me strikingly of Ephesians chapter 1, where it talks about all these things that happened before the foundation of the world. So let me conclude with this, and that is in very simple, very practical, pragmatic terms, God's calling carries with us serious responsibilities, serious reminders and serious privileges. What else must we take away tonight? We suggest also that we need to see the world as temporary and far less important than our non-Christian friends because the world in which we are engaged, in which we live, will one day pass away as illustrated in 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me suggest, secondly, that I will always seek to grow, always seek to improve, always seek to know more, to do what is necessary in order to make that happen so that my eternal life is more important than my temporary earthly life. Thirdly, I will voluntarily endure difficult days as part of my godly service. I'm okay to do that. I'm okay to suffer. And when I do suffer, rather than saying, Lord, why are you making this happen? Say thank you for the opportunity to be like Jesus Christ and to follow the pattern of Matthew chapter 11 and John chapter 7. And then let us conclude with this point, and that is always trusting, always trusting that God provides. That's the serious way of looking at our calling and a biblical way of looking at our calling. And we hope that you are also part of that calling as well. As we started, we end, and that is you can be called by God in the sense that he is calling you through the gospel message. 
through his son, through the writers of the gospel itself, and is asking you to come to him. When Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor, in Matthew chapter 11, he was saying to you and saying to me that you can be a child of God. And so we hope this evening that if you're not baptized, if that's something that you've yet to commit yourself to, that you'll make the choice to become a child of God tonight. We'd be glad to study with you. If you have questions about that, if you want to study further about what it means to be called, what it means to be a Christian, we stand ready to assist you in that. If as a child of God you're not living correctly and it's time for you to make a change, well, it is time for you to make a change if you're not living correctly. We hope that you'll allow us to be a part of that transformation in your life so that you, in the words of Peter, can make your calling sure. We'll help you with that if we can and if you'll allow us while we stand and while we sing.